On this episode of the London Light Scene, we talk with Dr. Jason Witt about disability, baptism, and much more. So we cover all sorts of topics like what is disability, what are the various models for it, as it relates to theology especially, and how have Christians traditionally approached the doctrine of baptism for those that are disabled? Is there a unique problem here, especially for credo-baptists? Are there reasons credo-baptists would want to withhold baptism from a disabled person? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. Uh, we are a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church. And I'm Jordan Stefaniak, joined by uh, Nate Martin who is also a North Carolina native. No, I guess not native, but he lives here in North Carolina with me. We're both transplants, but either way, we like North Carolina. And if you're new to the podcast, one thing we try to do, as we mentioned serious thinking, is to do it in a particular intellectual context. So we want to create or cultivate a culture of sorts that prizes things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So what that really ends up boiling down to is that we should be kind in our interactions with other people, whether we agree with them or disagree with them, but we can also do that in a way that doesn't sideline our convictions. We can have convictions about doctrines and beliefs, uh, but also be cheerful as we do it and build friendships. So one, one way we've described what we're trying to do is to just build intellectual friendships with people across the map. I think that's good and healthy for people to not just uh, view others as uh, either an ally like on the internet or or some sort of like opponent that you want to constantly dunk on. We're trying to build friends, friendships and friends uh, across the spectrum. Now today I am thrilled to introduce you all to Dr. Jason Witt. And we're going to be talking about disability, the theology of disability, and especially how it relates to credo-baptism. I know most of our listeners, or a good chunk of them, are Baptists. A good chunk of them are not Baptists. And one question that I remember, for me at least, that was brought up when there was a period of my life where I was considering no longer being a Baptist, I kept getting pressed with this question of, what do you do with a disabled person in baptism if you're a credo-baptist? You have no way of incorporating them into the life of the church. And that question really dug at me and stuck with me. So I think that question probably has been brought up to a lot of pastors who listen, and it's something that we should definitely think about as Baptists. So before we do any of that, Jason, tell me a little bit about yourself, but I would also love to hear the story of why you get in, got into the theology of disability to begin with. I think, like you mentioned, a lot of people who do work on this do it because of their own narrative story. I mean, naturally, that's just there's a pull to thinking deeply about topics that have impacted your own life. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Jordan, thank you for having me. Um, I'm really excited to be on the podcast. Um, as you say, my name is Jason Witt. I am senior lecturer in the honors program here at Baylor University. I am also affiliated faculty in the medical humanities program and the faculty in residence for our honors residential college, which means I have deliberately chosen to live with 320 18 to 22 year olds and share life with them with my family. Um, here at Baylor, I do lots of work around the, the, the area of pre-medical formation, work with students who imagine themselves going into healthcare. Um, and that began with with sort of a journey into into disability. Um, that was not what I intended. Um, as I came out of graduate school, it was nothing I had any preparation for. I didn't I didn't read anything on disability in graduate school. I was um, trained as sort of historical theologian, 
um, did a dissertation on Baptist political theology um, and was probably going to be fairly mediocre at that, but I was going to do it somewhat joyfully. Um, and then in um, June 2009, our daughter was born about a month early and began um, our entrance into this world of disability. Um, the, the sort of short version is she was born um, with what would be an undiagnosed genetic syndrome, um, probably a spontaneous mutation. Um, we never got a diagnosis for it, um, but it affected her, the entirety of her, her body. Um, she would spend her entire life about a six to nine month level, total care, um, feeding tubes. She never walk, talk, eat on her own. Um, and yet she became the center of our lives. Um, and for me, that began her birth, um, began me on a journey to try to understand what I was seeing, um, what this meant. Um, it began actually in the NICU. Um, as every good theologian does, I was in the NICU reading Augustine's Confessions, um, more likely because I had to teach it in two months and I had not gotten around to reading it in graduate school. And so I was trying to stay ahead and his confessions raised for me um, this question of what a good human life looked like and what it meant for my daughter who was sitting next to me in Isolette and all these other children in, in the NICU ward there. Um, it began to raise questions for me about what it is to, to live a good human life. What do we mean when we talk about the image of God um, and what personhood means? And so um, through a long series of conversations and reading and connections and wrestling, it, it kept taking me farther and farther down this road. Excellent. So when we think about disability just in general, give me sort of that baseline. Here's what we're talking about. What counts as disability? What doesn't count as disability? Um, you know, I think of my mother-in-law who she, she receives a disability check from social security, though she has all of her cognitive faculties. She's just like physically unable to do a, a normal work day. Is that what we mean by disability? Are there different grades of it? And then when we think once we've done that, like, how do we think about it theologically? What then are the sort of views on offer to think about it from that angle? Yeah. I think that's the that's the hardest question. I, I teach a course on disability, and I, I think over the years I still struggle to actually define what disability is. Um, you know, you know that, that she's getting a check for disability. In some ways, we, when we use the term disability, it, it becomes sort of a socio-political term to determine who gets benefits, right? It's a, it becomes a big umbrella term to say if we do something like the CDC's definition, this any condition of body or mind that makes it more difficult for the person with a condition to do certain activities or daily activities and participate in the world around them. And so something that has some limitation, we call a disability, but that's a pretty modern concept. Really the early 20th century, we began to try this umbrella to, to add this umbrella term of disability that could somehow define and categorize people. Um, whereas prior to that, we would talk about blindness or lameness or um, deafness. Um, we didn't really have good terms for intellectual disabilities, terms that we would want to use today. Um, but they're sort of descriptors of people, um, but not definitive of the kind of person that they were such that we can mark them out. Um, and so I think we still wrestle very much today with how we understand what disability is, what falls into that category. In some ways we can go with just, this is the, this is the category of impairment, limitation allows someone to, receive goods or services, um, 
from government or, or, for, or nonprofit agencies. On the other hand, we begin to think about what we mean by disability. Um, there's sort of a spectrum of understandings, something like what sort of dominates largely is what we, we term the, uh, the medical model of disability, right? It's, it's a deviation from the norm. Um, and medicine tends to want to bring people back to the norm to fix. And so disability is anything that, that, that takes a person away from what we call the norm of human being. And then sort of a counter movement to that would have been the social model um, that, that says, well, this is it kind of, it, it's, it's a construct of society. Um, we identify that which is other and name it other as disabled. And so the problem is not with the person, but it's with the structure of society that, that um, excludes people from the, in their different ways of participating. Um, and so, you know, um, the structure is not being able to use one's legs is only a disability if everything is built with stairs. If everything was built with ramps, it wouldn't be an issue. Um, and out of that, people began to to claim a kind of identity of this, as opposed to disability just sort of being a noun, this sort of umbrella, with this becoming an adjective to describe part of who I am. Theologically, we have to wrestle with it, because we also, in theological tradition, it's often been a moral issue. We see that even in scriptures, who sinned this man or his parents, that he was born blind. But we're pretty certain it's a, it is, in fact, um, a sin. Um, we have then in the, the theological tradition um, the, the sense that those who are disabled, who, who deviate, need healing, and we read scripture that way. Um, but I'm also not sure that's an entirely appropriate way to read it, nor do I think that's necessarily what scripture is actually showing. Um, so theologically, I don't think we have a lot of good answers. Um, I think it, and a lot of it, I believe, is rooted in our particular understandings of anthropology, what we believe it is to be human and how we name that, um, that I think is far more culturally rooted than it is scripturally rooted. Uh, Dr. Witt, continuing with uh, a lot of questions about definitions, um, can you define profound intellectual disability and why um, that may bring some uh, more uh, questions to consider uh, theologically mm -hmm. and in the church. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned, that was sort of my entry point. So that's sort of my, always my jumping off point as I begin to think about disability. Profound intellectual disability would be those who, um, because of intellectual impairment, structure of the brain, things like that, would have a very limited, if any, sense of self, right? That the one who is, is not going to have this interior sense often um, will not be able to identify myself as a self or another as other than me. And so that sort of profound um, limitation of my cognitive functioning. Um, as I tell my students a lot, and, and it, it began to dawn on me, I think profound intellectual disability, particularly as we think theologically, but even as we think medically, again, I work with a lot of pre-med students, functions as a kind of canary in the mind. Um, that it's sort of revelatory of how we perceive what counts as a good human life, um, because that can then lead to things like how do we view grandma with dementia, right? That, that loses a sense of self. And, um, and then that also is going to have profound implications for ethics and how we treat and act. I, I think Hans Reinders is, is a Dutch theologian has done really incredible work on this and really has helped shape my thinking. Um, 
but because profound intellectual disability was my entry point, it began to force me to think about what do we think about human being? Um, what does it mean to be in the image of God? If our account of the image of God is so often the case falls to something like reason, rationality, I can make autonomous decisions, I can direct my path, even things like when we throw in moral sense or creativity, even sometimes in ways we tend to approach it relationally, as in I'm directing relationships. Um, generally, our account of whatever it is to be in God's image falls back to something like um, my ability to cognitively engage, sort of reason, rationality. We even take that from Aristotle, Boethius, others. Um, but I think when we do that, and this is why I think it, profound intellectual disability acts as a canary in the mind, then there's a whole swath of human beings who we might say become morally questionable in their existence. Um, how is their existence a, considered a moral good if they lack the very thing that we say is in the image of God? Um, and so we either have to make arguments for why um, morally they belong or they have to justify their existence, which becomes very hard, or we're going to have to think long and hard about some of the arguments we make against questions like abortion. If in fact, this is not a human, a sort of good human life. Um, so that sort of reflection forced me to think more about what we believe it is to be in the image of God. And if reason or rationality or some kind of autonomy and independence are in fact what makes us in God's image. So uh, just one more question on like sort of like the general landscape of this. I, I hear from a lot of people who are, they'll read a lot of the contemporary stuff on theology and disability and they'll get very uncomfortable with some of the ways it's described they because they feel like it's um, somewhat conflicting with at least the, the the grain of the text that they find in the Gospels. They read the Gospel stories, they see these people with what they would think of as a general disability, someone's blind, someone's lame or, or something, and they want to be healed, and Jesus heals them, and that's a good thing. And yet then they hear other contemporary disability scholars saying, that's not necessarily the case. It might actually be a good thing to have the disability. What's the rationale that's going on there? And is that a good justification or, or is there something slippery that's happening there? I think we need to be careful. Um, I think I think there are ways which we have to read scripture. Um, not differently, but being able to recognize we might we bring things to scripture. We bring a particular account to scripture. We bring an account to scripture that already imagines something like blindness, lameness as inherently wrong, broken in and of itself. And so when we read the healing narratives, we imagine that's just what they are. The person's greatest need is in fact to be healed. But I'm not entirely sure that's what the gospel narratives are, are actually showing. Um, Amos Young has done great work on this, others. Um, I think we begin to, to, one, see the ways in which we are bringing this already account of a good human life into scripture then we're reading the healing narratives with perspective of they need to be healed. But I think we miss, in fact, that, that something else is very likely going on. 
Um, and so uh, one of my own professors, um, Dr. Michael Parsons, has, has worked on rhetoric in the New Testament. Um, he, he worked with this and recognized the, the idea of physiognomy in, in particular rhetorical traditions of the ancient world that, that the, the gospel writers would have been familiar with. But the, the, the physiognomy, the ways in which um, physical traits reveal inter, inner character, and there's whole physiognomy handbooks that reveal, okay, if, if you have this, it says this about your character. Blindness means you don't see truth. Um, something like congenital dwarfism means that you're actually also short and limited in character. And so we begin to read that and begin to see a couple things that the, the Gospels open up a little bit. The story of Zacchaeus is one that opens up incredibly. If, if we actually begin to recognize that Zacchaeus wasn't just, and I always tell my students this because I'm, I'm not tall in stature. Um, I'm, I'm, it depends on the, the, the supermarket, the convenience store I'm going out of, but I'm somewhere between five, five and five, seven. Um, what my driver's license says might not be accurate now. Um, but we imagine that. So Zacchaeus was short and you ran to get in the tree. If Zacchaeus was in fact a congenital dwarf, as the text kind of suggests in the Greek, then we enter the physiognomic realm where congenital dwarfism showed smallness of character. And now to name Zacchaeus as a tax collector makes all the sense in the world to first century readers, because of course he's doing this. We, we already know by his very physical, um, his physical stature that he is going to be a person of poor character. Of course he's going to be a tax collector. Um, and so in that, in that particular account, and I, and I bring this forward, Jesus comes to him and says, come down, I'm going to eat at your house. We see this sort of transformation in his character uh, that he offers to give back everything and more. And Jesus said, today he's a son of Abraham. But notice Jesus didn't stretch him out. So his need was not to be fixed. His need was relationship with Christ. And I think we begin to see that with a lot of the encounters, particularly if we begin to think about the ways in which disability in the first century world, particularly the Jewish world, would have excluded one from community. You weren't allowed in the temple. Um, and so the healing might be more about the restoration of right relationship with God and with others than it is necessarily about the fundamental need is fixing. Um, so Jesus will say, is it easier to say, get up and walk or this, your sins are forgiven. And, and the connotation is it's actually harder to say, get up, your, your sins are forgiven because that's God's prerogative. But so I can show that, go ahead and get up and walk. Um, the, the, the healings are signs of Jesus authority more so than the need of being fixed. Um, and I think as we begin to read scripture and begin to sort of take off lenses that assume the greatest need of disability is to be fixed, but rather to be restored to community, to find relationship with Christ. And in fact, the ways in which his acts of healing are not necessarily because the fixing is the key, but who Jesus is is key. Um, the one other I'd point to in this um, is actually in one of the articles I, I wrote um, on the image of God, but I actually got this from my, my pastor who noted um, only one of the accounts of Jesus cleansing the temple has this seeming throwaway line that after Jesus cleanses the temple, oh, and the lame and the blind come to him. Only one account of the four has that. And it seems a throwaway line, 
unless you go all the way back to Second Samuel, where David takes Jerusalem, but he, as he's sort of being taunted from the walls, they say, even the lame and the blind can keep you out. And so they go up the, the well. David says, go kill the lame and the blind, those whom David hates. And then it says, by the way, and they're not allowed in here anymore. And, and, and it becomes the tradition, the lame and the blind are not allowed in the temple because they're hated by David. It, the first David, Jesus, the new David, comes, cleanses the temple, and now into the temple come the very ones that David had excluded. Um, and we miss that if we just see lame and blind as things that need to be fixed, but rather the incorporation of all people into the kingdom of God through Christ's grace. Yeah, that's helpful. So as I think about bringing on credo-baptism to the table of discussion, you've written some stuff on this. I mean, I guess just as we start, like, how have Christians in general approached the topic of baptism for those that are, I guess it would have to be, for the most part, physically disabled if you're in an older period of the church. But once we get to the period where we have Baptists, and then they're wanting to have a credible profession of faith, I guess that would incorporate more cognitive sort of sides. So how have they done it in the history? And then how, I mean, it seems like this is a definitely a special or at least a uniquely acute problem for Credo Baptist. So I just love to hear you open up the topic and give me an idea for how it's been approached in the past. Yeah. I will, I'll confess, I, I have not done as much in how it's been approached, particularly physical in the past. I, I, I think it would have been manageable, um, particularly, I mean, this, when I first began looking at this, I, I remember thinking this would be really easy if I was Catholic, right? I just, this wouldn't have been an issue. We would have baptized um, as an infant before we really know much of anything. And, and we'll say we're good to go um, in a, in a really, that's not a really great theological statement, but um, it's kind of taken care of. Um, the intellectual disability, particularly for, Credo Baptists, those who began practicing believers' baptism is where it becomes an issue. I think at least part of the challenge is, at least in some ways, this is a, a contemporary issue because of our medical technology. And I, I, I was always, Maggie, my wife and I were always acutely aware that our, our daughter's very life isn't possible if she was, if, if this was 30 years earlier or so, 30 to 50 years earlier. She simply wouldn't have survived pregnancy. Um, she would not have survived um, infancy. Um, if she was born most many other places in the world, she would not have survived. And so in many ways, this is, this is both a challenge of our particular age and our medical advances and the ways in which technology always brings with it its own ethical challenges and evolving ethical challenges. Um, we see someone like Augustine, um, and this is actually not the part that got me got me interested. I found it when I was later looking for things. I mean, Augustine um, noting this really interesting case of um, a, a person who seemed to be um, very limited intellectually, though higher function than my daughter. Um, he seemed to have been able to to move about, though not to to speak. But Augustine notes that when anyone would speak poorly of the name of Christ, he would go into a rage. And for Augustine, this seems to suggest something like, okay, see, this this man can be saved. In fact, he, he kind of compares him to 
a, a um, very intellectually advanced uh, orator rhetoric in, in in whom he knew. And and Augustine seemed to say, see, even this one can be under God's grace. And so it wasn't a huge issue. I think he sort of allowed this place. When we begin to think about the question of baptism and for those with profound intellectual disability who can't name the name of Christ, who don't have a sense of self, now we do begin to bump up against the problem of what do we do and what does it mean for them to be part of the church? Um, in some ways, we get, we sort of punch the issue with with something like, well, we know God loves them and and they'll be fine. And we'll care for them while we're here, while they're here with us. But my question is, is what does this say about the very nature of the church? Um, and and I think what I would answer in terms of how it's been practiced, um, I think it's very situational and probably hit or miss, looks different a lot of places. You can have someone with Down syndrome who can say, I love Jesus and want to follow him. And that might be a, that actually, I think, is a really profound and beautiful confession. Um, I think about, I'm, I'm one of the, I mean, I know we Baptists wrestled with this. I was baptized when I was about five years old, probably pushing that age of accountability, whatever we want to call it. Um, but I had grown up in the church and I knew I loved Jesus. And did I understand my confession then? Yes, to the extent of a five-year-old could, but is it the same I have now? Not at all, but we can say that about marriage and any other, any number of things. We make confessions all the time and commitments out of those that we only grow to understand. So I think we could see that with someone with, and this is where the spectrum comes in, the limited understanding, but we might better baptize then as we move back and back. And for me, the real question is these profound intellectual disability. I don't know that we have good answers and I don't know that our theology helps us very much. Uh, Dr. Witt, in your article on baptism, um, you say that, that that baptism is more than simply um, a symbolic act of obedience. So, um, so therefore, um, withholding baptism from profoundly intellectual people who are in our communities could be actually be um, um, I don't know if hurtful is the right word, but but it, it, not appropriate for for us or, or or them. So, what do you mean by what is baptism, and and why is it important uh, for the for the entire community of the church? Yeah, what I what I tried to argue there is that we name it sort of the symbolic act, right? This act of obedience, but the real important stuff has already happened. But, but the more I looked at it and, and thought too about the earliest Baptist, there was something about that, that act of baptism that incorporated one into the very membership, the body of the church, the local community. And, and so to say, yeah, I will kind of let you be in here, but really not a part you're, you're something to act upon you're you're a i think i use the language i took from a friend of mine spiritual exercise equipment but but you're a an object of care for us but but when we think about the way in which baptism incorporates us even in baptist life into the body of the church it, it comes with obligations um like, I mean, we'll go very basic for Baptist, but voting and business meeting, 
but that I get to take take communion. Um, that I get to even worse, I get to serve on committees if we're going to a good old Baptist church, right? Um, that, but it suggests to me there's something far more profound happening in. I'm just happened to be joining the Elks Club because I've joined this voluntary association. We Baptists even have this remnant sense that something happens there that that incorporates us in the body, and and in thinking particularly about what that means to be embodied in a much more robust account of the church than I think we often hold in contemporary Baptist life. Um, and, and I'll confess, I've been. I, I've read De Luba. I've been formed by some Catholic tradition to think about the way in which the Eucharist makes the church. We're embodied with one another. Um, that that even drawing upon First Corinthians, we need these members to sort of make the church whole in, in the ways in which it becomes the kind of body that that um, witnesses to the resurrection, witnesses to the coming kingdom. And so I think even more than the, the harm it might do to the the one with disability i think the church itself is lessened when we say this is all that belongs in here is is this little window assuming and and imagining that these don't in fact have gifts that we need and i and i want to be careful here because i i don't mean in a in a way to say because i don't want to make them a third thing right that Here's how we get saved, and they get this special stuff. I actually don't think that's right. I think because that still makes them an other. They are saved by grace, um, by Christ's grace, holy. What I think, particularly for the profoundly intellectually disabled, meaning in many sense they don't have this sense of self, um, though I think they bear the marks and the nature of human fallenness. Um, they are empty to receive Christ, particularly as we envelop them into community. Um, and in that, Christ is then off giving them gifts that you and I need to make the church what it needs to be. Um, again, I don't think we could just go out and go find um, just a group of disabled people and or people with disabilities, and particularly intellectual disabilities, and go, okay, we're just going to baptize all of them. I think there's involved with this incorporation of the body that these who are who belong whose people are already there but we're there because our people are there too and so i think that's where then we begin to recognize and see gifts that we need and we only see them because we've been the kind of people who've been transformed by the work of christ and the work of the spirit in transforming our lives then we can actually see the giftedness they have that the world's not going to see I take very seriously that conversion actually does something to us, that it begins to transform us into a kind of people who see the world differently. Um, and we can see who they are differently um, and see the gifts they have. Uh, Dr. Witt, thinking about profound intellectual disability and baptism, um, can we speak of a spectrum of profound intellectual disabilities? And do you have any wisdom to offer um, uh, pastors as they try to prayerfully think about those who are already present in their community and who might be appropriate candidates um, 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 like, like you're suggesting that they might be? I do think there's a spectrum. And, and really, you move from profound to obviously less intellectual disability, right? Um, and, I, and I speak of this 
and I am thinking particularly those who don't have that sense of self and the ability to kind of respond on their own um, in the ways we not necessarily confess for them, but recognize the work of Christ already in them. As you move up, and again, I think as I think there might be a child with Down syndrome who could say, I love Jesus. I want to follow him. That to me is a, that's a real confession, right? And it might be as good as any confession I could ask for from a great theologian, right? That I love Jesus and I want to follow him. And I think there, there just has to be discernment. There has to be discernment in the church on how we do this. Um, as you say, it, there's discrimination. There's not indiscriminate, but we're discriminating and, and carefully discerning um, not to transform, to change our practice or, or re- relegate it, but to say, this one we recognize. This one here, we begin to see the ways which this one is, is this this child, this young man, this young woman can begin to recognize some things. And, and in ways, like we talk with various people to help them understand the gospel, ways they can understand the gospel to the extent they can, and then kind of affirm that through the act of baptism, and then begin to say, how do they belong in our church? Not just simply as, um, again, objects of care, but can we begin to discern gifts in them, opportunities to serve in the churches? So um, Bill Gaventa talks about, we, we kind of move from programs for to programs, you know, with them to programs led by them how do we begin to find opportunities for them to serve and i think that begins that's when you begin to really see something and i think that also matters in a culture that suggests um the kind of life that's good is youthful virile autonomous particular kinds of beauty and this is the life that matters and that by the way affects our medical care our allocation resources all sorts of things ethically and so we ask, who do we see leading in church? What would it be to have the child with Down syndrome pray um, for someone with a disability to help take up the offering, um, to be a greeter? Um, what would it look like for one who, again, with discernment, maybe can work and help in a children's room or help serving the meals on Wednesday, right? Ways not just to say you're an object of care, but you actually have something to teach in your very life. So how do we begin to, because now, again, now we're, we're pushing back against cultural anthropologies that, that I do think infect our church, our, 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 our theology. Um, and so otherwise pastorally, um, I would say, how do you help particularly families belong? And that's going to be listening to them, asking them, um what do you actually need what's best for how can we best serve you um a lot of churches like how are absolutely open to people with disabilities but the very practices of habits of how they enter how they're welcomed or not suggest far otherwise um but things like what what can we do and i, I particularly as, as families start out on the journey of disability they won't know um, I, I mentioned in one article I wrote, because um, I was really troubled by this. I was at a conference and people were, were bemoaning this. I think rightly so. People in churches don't want disability. They don't help us. They don't do anything. They don't. Um, it's hard to find a church to belong. And I thought, well, my church actually did. But I realized 
they helped us celebrate our daughter's birth when we couldn't. Um, because it was hard. We felt the immediate tragedy of it. And, and I will say most families are going to experience disability first as tragedy. Only then do we begin to move to recognize the kinds of goods. And that's a, that's a growth process that you don't rush. You can't tell people, hey, you need to see this as. We, we have to begin to learn that. But our church, when it was hard for us to, to recognize what was going on, we were sort of caught in this hard point of what do we understand this life to be able to, just like when our son was born and they brought us meals, they brought us meals when Camille was born as a kind of celebration of her birth. Um, then they began to, you know, they asked us what we could do. We didn't know when they said, what if we, um, what if we found ways for her to participate? What if we see your, your son's getting older, he needs to start going to church, big church. I don't know why we still call it big church after years and years and years. I'm, I'm almost 50 years old. I still call it big church. Um, right. Your son's about to go into big church. He wants to learn. You want to be with him, but Camille's not comfortable there. And she's kind of too big for the the nursery area. Um, what if we had people sit with her so you could go? And um, they began to help us think about ways, but, but it's because they were open and recognized that sometimes we just say, call us if you need us. Well, we, we're not going to do that. But they began to think with us on ways. And by the way, that very act of sitting with Camille opened up a whole bunch of people to realities about disability they didn't know. Um, they began to see, they actually revealed to us Camille's gift of joy. We didn't know it. I mean, not I had not put a name to it. When someone said to me, do you realize you can't be sad around Camille? And I suddenly realized that's true. I've never been sad around her. Um, she has the gift of joy. She shares it freely. So all these people would look forward to their Sunday of the month when they got to sit with her at church while we went in. They got to sit in the narthex. They got to sit with her. And that, they looked forward to that. And they recognized her gift. And their children would come. And their children now know something about disability. or not scared of it. So Camille was doing her work wholly separate from us, her family. So how can pastors begin to help find ways to do that? to recognize the challenges, to walk with people as they grieve and not rush them, um, but be alongside that grieving process. But but um, the work of Eric Carter, um, he was at Vanderbilt, he's now here at Baylor, um, on, he's worked with congregations disability, studied it for many years. Um, his work on helping people find belonging in churches is well worth understanding. So what would you say to, uh, there, I mean, I, I know there's a lot of Baptist churches who are pretty rigid on their definition of baptism. You got to have a particular mode. You got to have particular criteria that you meet. So if someone is physically unable to be immersed, then they're going to say, you can't be baptized. How, how would you approach a discussion with someone like that? It's a really good question. Um, Because in some ways, I do think that's a, a theological issue of, in some ways, to me, poor theology. And I know that's hard to say for Baptist. Um, but I would say, I think you are missing what Christ reveals in the ways in which he is drawing people to himself that had been excluded through grace for the good of all. Um, I think 
what we would see in scripture is um and and i know i've had these arguments with my my church of christ friends my catholic friends and all but there's a variety of ways you actually get baptized in scripture um and i think baptists have to really wrestle with that um but i would say fundamentally you are i think you are diminishing your church and in the church of christ um got christ's body by excluding those for whom he is not excluded um and i and and yes i recognize that in many ways we we do recognize baptism as a kind of of symbolic act of the of the confession i made but i do think it does something and I think you're saying it. Does, I would say to them, you're, I think you're saying it does something that you want to keep it so limited that you recognize it does something. But we have to ask, who who are those we're excluding and why? And I'm not saying we throw open the doors to, to any and everything, but I think we have to use discernment. And I think Scripture has called us to discernment there. I know that's not a very good answer. It's hard when we, because I do think we also have fundamentally different accounts of what's happening. And again, I do think it becomes the question of what we imagine it is to be in God's image. And, and I guess I should say this to lay my cards out. Um, I don't believe to be in God's image is a is a characteristic we can we can possess in and of ourselves actually think it comes extrinsically that God has that in the very act of naming us in God's image that makes us in his image um, I, I take very seriously the Cappadocians work that that there's not accidental in God's so when God speaks us and names us in his image that is actually what makes us that um, and in that image is the kind of befriending act of God and so in that way um, because anytime we start naming a characteristic intellect, moral reason, whatever, there are those more or less in God's image, if it's something we possess to a greater or lesser degree. And, 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 and scripture doesn't really ever name what it is to be in God's image. It says we're made of it, and it never really comes back to that. Um, but I actually think that the very act of naming makes us that. Now, I think our actions can make us, can sort of, to do things the more i turn from god um the less fully human i am but that's not based upon my my possession of reason or rationality that becomes me marring the own image the image yeah nate do you have any follow-up questions the only other question i was going to ask is if there's anything particular about the lord's supper um that you might wanted to say um in related to baptism um can, you know, especially if, you know, if we consider a means of grace, um, um, how, how, do we, how do we think about uh, withholding the Lord's Supper from um, 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 intellectually disabled uh, members of our body? Um, if, we, if we're not going to baptize them, that means they're not going to have the supper. So how, how do we think about that and what, what, what are we missing and, and withholding that? That's hard for Baptists because I'm not sure entirely sure what the supper is other than... I mean, it becomes a kind of ordinance, it becomes a memorial. We do it because we're told to do it. Um, I mean, I think in the Catholic Church, there are ways in which um, you can receive one element, right? I mean, 
I never got to do this. I can only imagine. I can only imagine Camille getting a little squirt of of wine through her G button. I don't know what that'd be. Um, the reception of grace that way. Um, certainly, the sacraments can come with blessing. Otherwise, um, it does get tricky in the church. Um, I'll just say this for us was we never did have Camille take communion. She never could eat or drink. I can imagine putting a a drop in her mouth. Um, we didn't ever do that. Um, but I think, I think we have to be cautious in how, in thinking of the health of one, right? We don't aspiration or things like that. Um, but certainly then being present at the meal and, and perhaps offering blessing. Again, I know Baptists don't necessarily hold it as a, as a conveyance of grace. Um, but certainly being part of the embodied community there. Baptism is easier to do because we can do that without risking in certain ways of, of like one aspirator who can't eat through by mouth. Um, but I think for the child with Down syndrome, that can become a, part, a participating in the body um, of, of reminding us who and what we are. My, I had a, a colleague who he's actually Baptist and married to a Catholic. And he, he joked about being at Ash Wednesday once at, at his wife's church for mass as, as the priest walked down the aisle, sort of sprinkling holy water saying, remember your baptism, remember your baptism. And he sort of looked at his wife because I'm the only one here who can remember my baptism. But she replied back to him. We remember for one another. I think in this case, we have, maybe perhaps we eat for one another. Um, so, you know, I, I remember profoundly on a, on an Ash Wednesday, um, having Camille next to me and my, I, I happened to go to a, a pretty liturgical Baptist church at the time. And, and we, we would impose ashes and, and looking at my daughter and making the sign of the cross on her forehead and ash and saying, you know, from dust you've come to dust, you shall return. And thinking very much, I will see her return to dust, knowing her life would be shortened. But that became a profound act of incorporating her into this body, reminding the way in which the grace of Christ is still present there. So, Jason, are there places that people can go to find your resources or to see any of your potentially recommended resources on this, on things like this? Yes, I mean there is there is an annual um, theology. Uh, Conference on Theology and Disability. Summer Seminar on Theology and Disability is one that moves around the country. That's a, a good conference. It's it's across the spectrum of, of uh, theological tradition. Um, one great resource, honestly, I'll, I'll plug it because it came out of Baylor. Um, we're no longer publishing it, but, but it's the, Nate, it's where you read my my article on disability. That that issue of Christian reflection, which was published by Baylor. For many years, it was a, a thema- each issue was thematic rather than just dated. The issue on disability in that one, it, it can be found on, you you, you search for um, Christian reflection and it'll bring you to Baylor's page. All those issues are available in full PDF. That issue of the, the disability issue has a number of great articles with some of the people I'd really suggest reading. And at the very back, it, it incorporates... Um, some book reviews of other books you might read. I think that's a great resource. Uh, Baylor Press, and, and I don't mean just plug Baylor constantly, but Baylor Press is actually doing a series on disability and theology, a really great series they'll be continuing. 
Um, there was the, the, the issue, the special issue of uh, review and expositor on disability that had some very excellent articles in there. Um, all those are, you can Google and find them. Um, I always lose the name. There's a center for bioethics. Um, and I'm blank on the name of it. They they actually have a really wonderful bibliography. It's it's a surfer bioethics out of um, oh gosh, I'm blanking on the name of the school. It's an evangelical school up north. Um, I'm I am so sorry. I I always get their emails every week and forget the name of it. Um, but they have on their resource page. You can click on a link for all sorts of sort of bioethical issues, including disability. And they have a beautiful. A very long, extensive uh, bibliography. Um, so, th those are great places to start. Cool. That's awesome. That's really helpful. I appreciate that. Uh, I'll track down that Center for Bioethics and put that in the show notes. So, if you're listening, you can click on the link and go there. Uh, Jason, this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about these things, to help us to think critically. Uh, about the topic and to hopefully assist us, especially those of you who are pastors and thinking well about how to care for and love those with disabilities in your own congregations, to incorporate them and to care for them and, th and their families too. So thanks, Jason. This has been awesome. Everybody's been listening. Uh, we appreciate you tuning in to the only analytic Baptist confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. <laughs>